Now we're rolling. Nice. A one, a two, a one, two, ready, go. <laughs> Give me a second. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I've got notes in two separate places, so I was just going to, all right. No, no worries, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, no worries. All right, gang. Well, it's so good to have you all here. Um, welcome, listeners, to this very special episode of Class Unity Transmissions. Uh, we have a panel episode for you today. We are talking about the recent brouhaha on Capitol Hill uh, with the, uh, the the rail workers strike and the suppression of that strike by Congress. Uh, we're also talking about class unity and our strategic relationship to DSA moving forward on the basis of the internal politics of DSA, its relationship to uh these, uh, these, these nominally left-wing uh, elected representatives uh, that DSA has endorsed and supported. Uh, joining me today, I'm very happy to report, is Hef, Sarah R., Julie Stout, Daniel and Jamal. My name is Nicholas Kiersey. I'm going to be your host for today. And uh, just to get us started, I'm going to just offer uh, my guests here with me today a provocation, uh, just a sort of a summary of sorts uh, of, of some recent events, and then I'm going to pass them the mic and we're just going to take it away from there. So, so most people listening will have heard, I think at this stage about the Railway uh, Labor Act of 1926. Um, the, the circumstances surrounding that act are a little bit kind of run, run contrary to how they're, the, the act was used last week. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, the act is important because it gives Congress the unusual power of being able to intervene in labor disputes when it comes to railroad strikes and labor, la uh, railroad labor relations. Uh, for some time now, railroad workers have been looking for redress on some of the very difficult and arduous circumstances that they have to work under, not just their pay, but also their time off. Uh, this came to a boil on Thursday, December 1st, uh, when the Senate voted 80 to 15 to pass a bill forcing a deal and making the railroad strike uh, illegal. They imposed what was known as then as the, the TA, the Tentative Agreement. Um, now, of course, Bernie Sanders and some other Democrats like Rashida Tlaib, also 10 Republicans in the Senate, voted against this bill, uh, but it passed. Uh, now, it's worth, I think, pausing, and this, I suppose, is the provocation, um, I think, to reflect on some of the commentary circulating around this. We had Rashida Tlaib, for example, note that the original TA, I'm quoting here, the original contract uh, that was voted down by four of the largest rail unions in the country, this was back in September. These unions together, by the way, represent about 55% of the unionized rail labor force gave no paid sick leave provisions, made no effort whatsoever to address rank and file complaints about unpredictable scheduling, among other concerns. And all of this, of course, despite the fact that the rail industry made a record-breaking 20 billion in profit last year. So here we had the ugly side of essential employees who, of course, worked very hard through a global pandemic without a single paid sick day, not getting the recognition they deserve and that they worked for um, under the auspices of this Railway Labor Act. Bernie Sanders commented on this. If you can't vote for this, he said, don't tell anybody that you stand with working families. Now, the real poison pill here was that 
Nancy Pelosi's office issued a separate resolution, uh, which was to include seven days of sick leave. This, of course, had no chance of being passed the Senate. Um, we all know the story of how Joe Biden's, the Senate has been under, under Joe Biden's administration. Very little progressive legislation has been able to pass the Senate the last couple of years. And we all know why. It's to do with people like Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema. Uh, sometimes they're known as the cast of rotating villains. Um, but surprisingly, and I think this is what we're kind of here to really sort of get our teeth stuck into today, so many progressive politicians, people endorsed by DSA, people um, supported uh, by DSA, people for whom DSA has gone to the mat and campaigned for, gone door to door for, uh, people like AOC, uh, Bowman. Um, these uh, supposedly progressive politicians um, really sort of held up and elevated this separate bill and the sick leave resolution it contained as an alibi for their support for the TA. Uh, in the left media space, journalists like Ryan Grimm even went so far as to point to some of the uh, small rank and file craft unions that endorsed this separate approach and sort of said, you know, behold, see, this is supported by, by labor. Uh, nevertheless, I think looking back even now, a week, two weeks later, it, 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 has left a very bitter taste in the mouth. Um, we're here today to discuss what all this means and what DSA should do about it. I mean, we're talking about workers who can't even get the minimum seven paid sick leave days that federal contractors are entitled to under Obama's executive order of 2015. So um, maybe I can just throw it open to my panel here and ask, you know, what what is the important uh, sort of salient point about how we got here that that's that that class unity members and and people who are thinking actively about labor relations today need to be getting yeah well i i think the main thing that we all have to understand is that it's not insofar as dsa and the left are concerned it's not that much of a surprise that aoc and the rest sort of betrayed the working class on this bill but what is more telling is that doc's leadership is unwilling to do anything about it even 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 something as symbolic as expelling them from the AOC Bowman and Cory Bush from the organization or revoking their endorsements which is a symbolic gesture but they they won't even do that right and this shows <clears throat> i think how how completely captured DSA has been by uh what is essentially the the left wing of the democratic establishment at this point, right? If if you're not willing to stand up for the railroad workers in this case, you can't even really call yourselves like uh, an internal progressive oppositional movement within the Democratic Party. As as unsatisfying as that would be, that's not even what you are at this point. You're you're just sort of the fig leaf of the democratic establishment. Yeah, I, I similarly can't say I can't I can't say I'm surprised, but. Um but um, the only thing surprising about it is that, you know, you know, how much can be gotten away with. It just keeps sort of getting worse and worse and worse. And then, you know, the worst part, I suspect so far is that, you know, I hear a lot of leftist voices making excuses um, for things and defending things and sort of taking sides nominally. Like I'm a I'm a. I'm a leftist, I'm a, I'm a this or that. So I have to, uh, sort of come to AOC's aid as though she needs any help from, um, her army of auxiliaries, which are more or less expendable. Um, it's, it's pretty clear. I mean, this, that, that this organization is part of the problem. I mean, 
you have a group of people who call themselves socialists because that word means something kind of indefinite, indefinable to millennials. You know, it gets gets attention and so forth. But I mean, if you vote against labor, you're you're part of the problem, especially considering that they're, you know, basically an umbrella organization under the Democratic Party. I mean, I just don't see how anybody could even deceive themselves anymore into thinking that this is anything more than just a sort of advertising campaign for the Democrats. I just, I mean, at, at what point, at what point will, will the quiet part get said out loud, loudly enough that it will be, you know, no longer, you, you can't hide it anymore. It's just totally obvious. I don't know when that day will come if this isn't it. I, I think this has got to be it. I think this is the, the most, <clears throat> the most incontrovertible proof possible of DSA's political orientation up to this point that you, you could always say, you know, oh, well, there's a struggle, you know, within the heart of the organization, you know, there, there it's a, it's a contested, um, you know, it, it's politically contested internally, right? You can't really say that anymore. The, f the fact that this has happened and DSA is not doing anything about it. Like you can't even imagine a universe where DSA would do something about it at this point. Like the, the overall organization, the overall orientation of the organization is set in stone. It cannot be changed. Um, and I think it's time for people to start looking elsewhere. Right. So, so I think that's a very interesting point you just made there, Jamal. And, and thanks, Dan, also for your comments. The question I, I suppose I want to ask you is, how did we get to this particular moment, why why is it is it is it something to do with the fact that these are rail workers? Um, is it something to do with the fact that it's just such a, a a minimal demand that they were making? I mean, we're talking about seven days, as I said in my kind of intro there. You know, seven days of leave, paid leave, paid sick leave is it doesn't seem like a whole lot to ask when most federal contractors are entitled to that as a baseline. Um, is it, is it just something about the insulting nature of the rejection of this demand? Is it something about the underhanded way it was divided up in Congress and that these progressives so-called supported it? Um, you know, what is it that has 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 put this on our radar as 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 being a sort of a final straw? Because they're happy in other moments. Let's be real. What do you have in mind? The Palestine thing, probably. Yeah, that's that's the one I was thinking about. But also, I think maybe right. you could also say force the vote, you know, uh, last year. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, with force the vote and the Palestine thing, um, I think it, obviously it was perfectly reasonable to to criticize and lose faith in DSA over either of those things. But I think that this is different because it's not an activist demand. This is a working class demand. This is a demand of actual workers organized in actual labor organizations out there in the real economy. It's not a demand emanating from sort of the, the progressive activist stratum. And that's not to say that progressive activists, right, or the academy or what have you. It's not to say that progressive activists are wrong with every single one of their demands. I support both Force the Vote and, um, you know, BDS and CU did um, when both of those were live uh, political issues as well. But those were coming from activists and betraying activists is not as big of a deal as betraying actual workers. Truly. I want to state explicitly the rage that I feel about how we were all betrayed 
because this isn't just about the railway workers. I don't have paid sick days either. But as we've talked about in class unity many times, the strategy has been for the logistics sector to strike because they are the sector who have the power. In a sense, they were fighting for all of us. And when the railroad workers were betrayed, all American workers were betrayed. I mean, that's yeah, very interesting. That's There's something point. interesting about rail workers. I mean, if you look at the British, uh, you know, not that it's necessarily comparable, but there, there's a number of rail strikes going on in the United Kingdom right now, I think for the very same reason that, you know, these are so-called essential workers. They've been treated badly. They're not getting paid what they're due. They're, they're not getting uh, the benefits they're due. And also they occupy this very strategic uh, location. And I think also they're people who are seen in the public imagination as being, you know, in a sense, sort of neutral, like, you know, they're, they're not seen as being um, um, a particularly politically charged group. Uh, when they speak, if they make a demand, it's, it's, you know, it's something that people can access. I mean, we, we all, we play with toy trains when we're kids, you know, like it's it, the, the rail, the rail is, 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 has, has a certain sort of imaginative standing as well, which I, I just wonder if that's maybe part of what's going on here. Dan. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I think that's a good thing to think about. I mean, I can imagine quite easily why the democratic party establishment or, you know, um, <clears throat> any number of people in the capitalist class, um, or in government, sort of the power elite don't want a strike to happen, you know, because if the strike happens, especially in that sector, what you do is you shut down, you set down, you shut down, um, all the transportation of stuff. You stop the commodity chains, you stop the markets. And then every worker in America is going to see what happens when labor is organized. And it says, actually, no, you're going to do it our way. Um, so I can imagine quite easily why, why the ruling class wouldn't want that to happen and would want to stop that at all costs, right? Because that's an advertisement for labor organizing. Um, what is harder to understand or imagine sort of at first glance is why people in the Democratic Socialists of America would um, do anything that shuts that down. But then, you know, it's not cynicism. Just think about it. I mean, they these actors are part of that establishment um and it's you know they, they don't care um they just they don't even care so i mean if this is socialism at all a movement for socialism at all i think um what is clear is that it's a kind of white collar socialism it's socialism for white collar intellectual workers it's basically you know just concerned with job programs for the professional managerial class and you know, if if ever workers were organized and could bring the economy to a halt in order to demand uh, more control uh, over the economy and their own fate and so forth, I mean, from the perspective of your average PMC DSA uh, person or even those you know elected or even sort of higher on the ladder, that would just be more menial workers that you're going to have to manage. You know, because I mean, think about it: the unions themselves are basically appendages of the managerial apparatus. You have full-time administrators working in a union. Um, you can't really expect much from that. What's remarkable is that it got as far as it did, um, given how 
just absolutely messed up the unions are in this country. And, and, so, and one of the major unions just ousted its leader. Um, one of these managerial guys who had been trying to shill Biden's deal, the rank and file were so pissed off, they they managed to, to turf him out. Um, so I, I think that this is really an unprecedented flashpoint. This is something that is really pissing people off. And it has the potential to go further. I don't know if the if the labor, if the railroad workers are going to be able to go on strike, but that's something that any self-respecting left would be pushing for a hundred percent, right? Instead of, you know, trying to, to, to play both sides like DSA has been doing. Uh, the reason I think this is such an important moment for the DSA, at least, is there's never been a moment <laughs> in which the issue was put so squarely I mean, we have a, a lot of, you know, debates or gatekeeping of the la in the left of, you know, you're not a socialist if you don't believe this or that or the other. Um, but I think <clears throat> no matter how dumb or, uh, you know, uh, no matter how much of how dumb or how much of a con man you are, you have to accept that socialism is nothing if not a workers movement. And it grows by building working class power. <laughs> How do you build working class power? Well, you build unions. And when you have unions, you uh, enter into negotiations uh, or, you know, you struggle with your boss for better pay, for better conditions. And when your boss doesn't budge, you escalate until you go on strike. And a strike in a sector or a general strike in the economy is, is something that socialists should be pushing for when opportunities arise, because those are the moments uh, when workers are, are organized uh, against their bosses in a unified, coordinated, uh, you know, combative way. So the socialists should be supporting workers wherever and whenever they can, uh, you know, no matter where in the process that is. And so if you have elected leaders of a socialist organization get asked to vote for a bill that imposes a contract on the workers they cannot call themselves socialists. They are the opposite of socialists. They're on the other side of the work. Uh, they're on the other side. They're, they're, they're facing the workers. They're against the workers. So you, there's no way, you know, I, I mean, I, you could explain this to, to a five-year-old. There's no way after this moment that AOC or Cori Bush or Jamal Bowman can seriously be considered socialist. And there's no way that anybody who defends them, uh, strike breaking can be a socialist and, you know, put it further. There's no way a socialist organization that supports them and endorses them can be considered a socialist organization in any meaningful sense of the word and put further something, you know, all of us need to think about, is there a way uh, you know, an active member of an organization like the DSA 
can be considered socialist. I mean, I mean, this is something that, you know, everybody else can look at and say, oh, you're in the DSA. Isn't that the organization whose elected leaders voted to break a strike? I mean, I mean, you, you should, you should be, <laughs> you know, the reputation of socialists and socialism among working class people is important. Is it not? Sarah, I know you wanted to come in there. Yeah, I think the word that you were looking for have to describe AOC and these other progressive Democrats that are disguising themselves as socialists is actually the word scabs. These people are scabs. Yeah, yeah. They are breaking a strike. Um, they're on the side of management and they're on the side of the bourgeoisie. Uh, never before has there been a more opportune time for a railroad strike. The railroad industry has been facing decades and decades of neoliberal austerity. Uh, there used to be half a million railroad workers in America, and now there's only like 100,000. And since even 2019, we've seen a drop by like a quarter, I think, of like the working population. So we've lost all these workers. There's fewer and fewer workers, and they're being made to work these abysmal schedules that have them waiting around all day um, because of this like precision scheduling that they've been imposed. Um, and so for them to not even be able to get sick days in the face of, you know, a pandemic or, you know, in the face of just a hard job that's hard on your body and on your like mental health is really, really bad. And it just seems like the type of thing that people would do only if they're, you know, acting as loyal opposition for the bourgeoisie. Like they're not even they're like you said, they're not really even socialists anymore. I want to push you guys on this question and maybe Julie, you can help me with this. Um, I, I want to put a counterfactual to you and I, I want to sort of do it with the listener in mind here, because I, I just want to be sure that people are clear about the kind of, if you will, theoretical argument we're putting forward here, because it's, it, there's, a, there's, there's a lot at stake if we grasp this point, right? So it's kind of a counterfactual. What would these politicians go to the mat over? If, if, if our account of their relationship with DSA is accurate, if, if our account of their function as a loyal uh, opposition, as, as Sarah just put it, is accurate, um, uh, if, if what Dan said earlier on about this essentially being jobs for the professional managerial class, if that's their objective. Like, so so what, what could we really see them wanting to sort of expend their political capital on uh ukraine yeah okay i think they'd they'd probably go to the matter of student loan debt i think that's something that that you could see aoc voting against pelosi on and sort of making a big stink over because that's something that she probably actually cares about unlike mm -hmm. railroad working conditions and it's something that her constituents who are middle you know marginally employed or or déclassé middle class millennials they care a great deal about student loan debt forgiveness they don't really care that much about railroad sick days well Dan, we also you, know they'll go to bat for immigration to bring in more workers um you know to kind of curb the effects of like a dropping population and things like that in america yeah probably any identitarian style uh, civil liberty like a right to this a right to that um which of course you can only ex you can only exercise if if you know if it concerns you one and two if you have the means like um to do so so wealth will prohibit anyone from exercising certain certain rights but you know in principle you have them so they'd probably go to bat for for any of these kind of abstract you know in principle mm -hmm. style liberties but um 
I mean, I think the main thing is, um, the main thing is that, you know, let it sink in and it hurts, but the sooner you, the sooner it clicks, the better. Um, um, this was a branding exercise to get jobs for individuals, careerist members of the upper middle class to get elected. That's what this was. I mean, there was a festering corpse, uh, the Bernie Sanders campaign, and then came the carrion birds and they tore it limb from limb and, um, they used it to get jobs. Um, and that's what this is. So have the way you put it, actually, I'd flip it. You don't, you know, you can explain it to a five-year-old. I think a five-year-old could probably explain it to anyone. And you said, you know, it's not a socialist organization in the meaningful sense of the word. What we need to start asking ourselves is, well, what's socialism in the meaningless sense of the word? Because that's what we have. We have the meaningless sense of the word. And we really need to disambiguate here. Um, so I don't think these people are fake leftists. I think they're real leftists. And I don't think they're fake progressives. I think they're real progressives. And we need to know what these words actually mean. Progressivism is an ideology with a history. It goes back to the beginning of the 20th century, at least. Um, people like Teddy Roosevelt, um, a benevolent oligarch, um, were progressives. And so it's really wrongheaded to expect anything less from a person who calls themselves a progressive. They're telling you what they are. And some people just don't listen. And they say, why did they betray us? Well, they told you what they are and you just aren't listening. Um, they are left liberals. <laughs> they're left. It's not fake. It's real. They're just not socialists and they're not Marxists in the sense in which we use the word. The question then is, what's the other sense? And, and you know, that's what I was trying to grasp at. I, mm. You know, it's white collar socialism is a jobs guarantee for the PMC. I mean, this is why the working class doesn't like socialism in this country, because it basically means the dictatorship of the managers. What worker likes the managers? Nobody. Dan, so we need to disambiguate. Just to come back at you on, on yeah. that a little bit from a sort of a devil's advocate point of view, um, I hear you, but how then in your mind uh, can we explain uh, Rashida Tlaib's position or, or Bernie Sanders' position on this? Because it's not like they all voted yeah. in favor of it. We did have some very principled, even Republicans, yeah. for God's sake. <laughs> Ted Cruz. Yeah, that's the thing. When Ted Cruz looks better than you, you're in bad shape. I mean, my answer to that would be this. Uh, people point to the diversity in the DSA and they say it's a big tent organization. Look, you know, we've got anarchists, we've got libertarians, we've got Stalinists. We've got, oh, it's great. Yeah, so much diversity. Um, but here's the thing. I look at that politically, strategically as hedging, right? So what you do is you support a bill which will destroy, you know, which will force upon workers a package they've already said no to democratically. And then what is it? You propose another one, which will give them the sick days so that you can say, well, you know, we did both and we tried. Right. And, and what is, is hedging? They get together, the five of them or whatever. And they say, look, um, you three have to vote for it, but two of us have to vote against it. So who, they draw straws, like who's going to vote against it. So we don't look like total shill scabs. Right. And so it's just hedging. And the important thing there is that I think to recognize this is like controlled opposition, but it's a sort of native outgrowth of the uh, demographic of people who say they're interested in socialism. It's, it's automatic. This happens. You get a career and then you become the enemy of the workers. And so, you know, there's, there's no reason to expect anything else. That said, I mean, you know, I read something today. Goldman Sachs is going to lay off like 4,000 workers. Uh, there's going to be a lot more um, PMC unemployment because the economy is just tanking. 
And, um, you know, like Twitter, you know, Elon Musk gets Twitter and then he just lays off all of these bullshit job people. And, um, so, I mean, maybe on the bright side, the DSA can expect, uh, more recruits in the near future, all of these <laughs> bullshit job people, um, suddenly yeah. downwardly mobile. Okay. Yeah. The, the question of, of why Bernie and Rashida Tlaib voted the right way on this, um, I'm not sure there needs to be like a structural sort of like, you know, um, like they're playing their own good cop, bad cop routine internally. I'm not sure the extent to which they actually coordinate with each other. Um, for one thing, um, I, I think it probably, you can just chalk it up to personal idiosyncrasies. Um, Bernie obviously is from a different generation. Rashida Tlaib comes from a very different sort of district than the rest of them. You know, it's a very working class district, um, in Detroit and it's sort of, um, inner, inner suburbs. So I, I think you can probably just look at them and say, okay, well, they're, they're probably actually a little bit better. They're closer to being socialists than the rest of them are, um, at, at least on some issues. So I think, I, I think that's kind of all you have to say about that. A good answer. Julie, you wanted to come in. Yeah. Uh, I think that when we're talking about DSA branding exercises, I think that Sarah hit the nail on the head when she said that AOC is a scab and if DSA is endorsing her, DSA is an organization for scabs. Now I've been attending these um, DSLC labor meetings to try to prepare to get organized for a potential Teamster strike mm, next, mm, next this year, coming yeah, yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it was kind of scary going as a member of DSA out to the picket line last year when uh, some local Teamsters were on strike in my area. And I went out there and I didn't know what kind of reaction I was going to get when I said I was from the DSA. Well, they'd never heard of the DSA before. And that was fine and good. And I gave some encouraging words, brought some coffee, some comrades brought some snacks. Um, and we tried to provide support on the picket line. Am I going to be able to go to a Teamsters picket line next year and say I'm from the DSA? I don't fucking think so. You did make a good point, though, just now. You, you know, people don't even know what it means when you say what the DSA is. Because the DSA is like, um, it's like a big fishbowl. And when you're in it, sometimes you forget you're in a fishbowl because it's big enough you can move around. But when you're outside of it, no matter how big the fishbowl is, it's pretty small, right? And all the other, you know, fish in the ocean don't know the fishbowl we're from. I mean, most workers don't even maybe know about the DSA. And I think that that's also a good sign that uh, members of the DSA should think about. If workers don't know who you are, maybe, you know, you're irrelevant and maybe this is just a sort of living room exercise, you know, evening entertainment, like people used to play Milton Bradley games. Some people go to DSA meetings. Um, it, you know, it, the fact that nobody knows what it is and, and maybe, maybe there won't even be negative fallout because, you know, this is only addressed to, um, middle-class people, millennials, um, who are going to vote for, or do the work for democratic candidates in their campaigns. You know, I, I think, I, I think that this, we've, we've come to the conclusion, I think, basically, and I think any sensible person has to come, come to the conclusion that DSA is either too weak to really be relevant or its politics are too bad um, for it to be useful or both, right? And for a while, it seemed like DSA potentially, you know, it was a site of internal political contestation and it could have been maybe directed in a given direction, but that didn't happen. 
Um, we see very clearly now, incontrovertibly, the, the orientation of DSA. And I think all the people who are in DSA just like trying to steer the ship in the right direction need to really think to themselves what exactly they are looking to accomplish, how likely they are to accomplish that and what they could be accomplishing if they were doing something else. Um, and this is becoming more and more apparent as DSA sort of hemorrhages members, um, hemorrhages in particular active membership. Um, it used to be the case that DSA chapters could mobilize, at least in Chicago, we could easily mobilize, you know, enough to make the 10% quorum. We could easily mobilize dozens and dozens of volunteers to go out for aldermanic races. That's clearly not the case anymore. They're, the rank and file membership of DSA has lost confidence in the organization and isn't showing up anymore. So mm -hmm. the calculus has been trending in this direction, but I think it's very clearly at the point where this organization can't accomplish much of anything for actual class politics. And people who are trying to use it to accomplish class politics need to be very clear eyed about whether whether they're wasting their time or not or worse than wasting their time, whether they're actually making things worse. Um, and yeah, I mean, after this, after this, I don't know how you can how you can say, oh, well, let's just try again next convention. This yeah. time we'll definitely, yeah. you know, like we'll we'll yeah. definitely reform the organization. Everything will be fine. It's like, no, man, like there's no path for that to happen. The, this well, thing is dead. That Jamal, I, I, I think that is the, the, the central question of our discussion tonight. And I, I, I want to discuss it properly. What, what I'm going to propose is that maybe we make time for it uh, towards the end of our recording. Um, but I think just, just for the minute, um, I, I kind of want to, want to just stay with, uh, some of the analytical questions. Um, do we, uh, know uh, or have we been following um what other dsa groups are uh, sort of key individuals uh, in and around dsa are sort of articulating in relationship to this question because i i know class unity obviously has its positions but um what are we hearing from out there in the wider dsa world uh, where, where does the energy seem to be what are the arguments who are the antagonists well, Hef can probably speak to that because um, he proposed uh, a resolution at Chicago DSA's last general meeting to yeah. kick AOC, Corey Bush, and and Jamal Bowman out of the organization. And oh, um, so how'd it go? <laughs> <laughs> um, it failed. <laughs> what was the vote? So, I feel like I need to step. I feel like I need to step back a little bit. In in response, um, I think very quickly uh, you had different uh, caucuses uh, coming out with their own statements, all of them expressing some level of disappointment and, you know, varying from we are so disappointed and we disagree with the decisions of these elected representatives to uh, that's, you know, um, the North Star, Bread and Roses and other uh, sort of you know, right wing caucuses of the DSA were expressing mere disappointment. Um, other factions were calling for the expulsion 
of those representatives. Uh, Class Unity uh, called for their expulsion and circulated a petition uh, uh, to expel them. And uh, I proposed, uh, I brought that petition to Chicago DSA. I wrote a proposal uh, and I proposed it to the uh, general uh, chapter meeting in Chicago DSA um, that Chicago DSA would sign um, the petition to expel those representatives and would uh, come out with uh, their own statement uh, condemning them um, and and calling for their expulsion. The results did surprise me. Uh, there were about 80 some members in attendance, uh, which is way below quorum. Quorum was about 250. And I proposed to add it to the agenda at the beginning of the meeting. So according to Robert's rules, since it wasn't on the agenda when the meeting started, I had to make a, a motion to add it to the agenda just to discuss it and possibly vote on it. After some debate, uh, the members in attendance voted uh, 71 to 14 not to put it on the, the agenda, not to even discuss it. So I, I didn't, I don't know if I expected it to pass, but I didn't expect it to fail so abysmally. Mm, mm, I mm. think <laughs> I walked away from that meeting, you know, you know, pretty, pretty certain that it was over. It was over. After this moment, I'm pretty sure the DSA is dead. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's important to note that like only 80 people out of 250, I, I don't know what, what percentage of the total chapter population that is, but it's like low, low single digit percentages of the total chapter membership showed up. So that tells you one thing, which is that this chapter at least is essentially moribund. And the only people showing up to this meeting are are this hardcore of kind of professional political operatives, right? And so we we can see what their politics are because they voted, you know, 70 to 14 against holding these um, these electeds to account. And it's like this is this is who is actually going to major city DSA meetings at this point. It's it's people who are deeply enmeshed in local Democratic Party politics, and their politics is just straightforwardly right wing. Um, it's, there's no pretense of any kind of socialist explanation for their behavior at this point. Like they don't care to offer one. They're just treating the organization like a volunteer pool, like any other local quote unquote, you know, grassroots, but really astroturf grassroots progressive organization would be. It's, it's not socialist. There's no pretense of socialism. The, the, the goose is cooked, right? What do you mean when you say right wing that they're de facto right wing? Could you say what you mean by right wing? I, I mean, I mean, economically right wing, like to the right of, of even like labor liberalism, right? Like they're, they're, they're people who are not willing to, um, stand up to the democratic establishment on 
anything of import as we're seeing with the railroad strike. Like that's, there's, there's no pretense of, Oh, we're going to drag them left. Like we're going to stretch the Overton window, all these other kind of justifications that people used to give for, for why DSA needed to kind of work within the democratic coalition. That's not, it, it's done. Like there's no pretense of that happening anymore. So you mean they're ba- you basically mean they're neoliberals. Yeah. I mean, uh, essentially like they're austerity, anti-labor deregulation, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that you, you, you vote, your representatives vote to impose this contract on workers and then you do nothing about it. You don't even want to talk about it. You just want to say like, okay, you know, next issue, right? Like that's at that point, you know, you, you've shown your colors. Also doing the work for the master kind of really, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and can I just add to that? Please. I think Jamal's point that, uh, you know, the only people that showed up to this meeting were, you know, the, the political operatives. I think that's exactly right. Uh, and the, I think the allure, I think the allure of the DSA was it's such a huge organization, um, you know, uh, sh- surely, you know, if you talk to rank and file members, they'll have a, a politics, you know, at least vaguely resembling socialism. Right. And uh, my experience, at least at, at that meeting, was that the rank and file aren't there anymore. They don't exist. They've fallen off in large part due to the betrayals uh that we're talking about right now, um, uh, breaking the railroad strike, um, you know, funding the Iron Dome and everything before that, all of these rank and file uh, members, I, I think many of them reacted to that um, by totally disengaging. And, uh, it, it, you know, the more, the more this continues to happen, the more, you know, the people you would want in a socialist organization are not going to be active anymore. And the less the people you want to be going into a socialist organization are even going to bother joining the DSA. It's only going to get worse from now. Or better if you're on the other side. <laughs> yes. I mean, from, the, from the standpoint of the opponent, this is perfect. Yeah. It couldn't, couldn't be better. Right. right. Yeah. This is exactly like what, what, you know, Starmer and, and the labor right have been doing in, in labor, right? Like they don't care if membership drops because they'd rather have a smaller organization that it with, with yeah. politics that is less confrontational towards the ruling class exactly. than a large organization that has a better shot of actually accomplishing things because that's these people's interests are not oriented towards accomplishing things. These people's interests are oriented towards kind of circulating through the, this universe of kind of nonprofit grassroots activist sinecures, right? That is their entire career universe. And they don't care about anything else. They don't care about any kind of broader political uh, movement or mobilization. All they care about is their own immediate career imperatives. Um, and, and so, yeah, like, like DSA, whatever potential it may have had at one point, I, it doesn't have any, any more from the standpoint of working class politics. I think we should at least mention the Seattle petition because that seems to have got a lot of signatories. Um, and 
the people within DSA who seem to be the most upset about this have um, signed on to the Seattle petition. And I wanted to just share a little bit about when that dropped, there was a discussion about should class unity sign on to the Seattle petition. Um, and we read it together. Uh, a couple of us who just happened to be at a social the night that it dropped. And I said, so what they want to get out of this is a, a town hall meeting. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I don't want to hear right, right, what AOC has to right, say. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear right. any more from Jamal Bowman ever again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of makes you wonder what these people are in it for, really. Like some people, I mean, people do weird things with their free time. Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly right, uh, Julie. Like, if if you can't even say in the petition these are the consequences that need to be meted out, mm. you know, as a starting point, like, yeah, it's just a joke at that point. Like, it's just play acting outrage and and simulating sort of opposition to the the politicians who are actually in charge of the movement, but in the same way that AOC simulates opposition to, to Nancy Pelosi or Joe Biden, right? Like, Mm. um, the, the internal dynamic of DSA is such that, um, the rank and file people, as Hef was saying, the rank and file people with, with reasonably solid socialist approximating politics are mostly gone. Um, or the ones that are left are incredibly minoritary kind of disorganized not really capable of directing the organization um and the the convention doesn't matter you know the the whatever resolutions are passed at convention are completely irrelevant from the standpoint of what the incoming npc is actually going to do so it's like people have been devoting so much of their lives to trying to fix this thing and it's not getting fixed Okay, yeah. let's 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 jump on that then. I think I think this is the time to now go into that com- part of the conversation. Uh, it it sounds like we're all ready to put DSA in the grave. Okay, but but there's an audience out there maybe listening to this show, people who maybe if I could sort of uh, ventriloquize them a little bit because I think I I consider myself a, a member of this demographic. Right? It's uh, those of us maybe who um, you know came in to DSA in 2016, 2017. We were part of this big surge. Uh, we were very excited about Bernie Sanders. We we really believed there was a shot at putting some kind of socialist in the White House. Um, it's gonna be very hard for us emotionally to to make that shift. It's it's like break, breaking up with a bad partner, right? Like, you know, it's, it's, you know, you love them, but you know, they're no good for you, right? It's a tough thing to do to pack your bags and leave. Um, can, can you help me understand the argument here? This is just for, for people who may be listening, throwing their hands up in the air, guys, like you guys can't be serious right now. Right. So, so help me with them. Have we really tried everything to reform DSA? And why is it that it's so impossible? Dan, you take it away there first. Yeah. Uh, so I think just going off of this, I was uh, thinking, you know, we really need to take seriously. Um, so do a little thought experiment. Just forget, try to forget who you are and just pretend that you are 
I don't know, Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett or you are Elon Musk or you are, um, you know, any one of these people who, you know, most of their income is passive rentier income. They have so many assets that, you know, they could stop all their activity and just live on it because they own, they're the owner class, right? The owner class. So you got the owner class and the controller class. Um, so the capitalist class and the, and the political crust, um, imagine you're one of those people. Now, okay, so you don't think any of the things that you think and you don't believe any of the things that you believe anymore because you're not yourself. You're somebody else. You're really rich and powerful, right? Now, um, now you're going to have opponents because whenever you have power, someone tries to take it from you. So if you're that powerful and wealthy, you're going to have enemies. Now, just think, you know, what kind of enemies would you want to have if you have to have enemies, right? So you've got to have enemies, but what kind would you have if you had your way, if you could you know, actualize your preference, what, which kind of enemies would it be? So if I were an oligarch, um, this is precisely the kind of left that I would like to see. Um, I would like to see a left which is concerned about abolishing the police instead of abolishing NATO. I would like a left which is more concerned about um, gender and pronouns and um, race than about taking capital out of the hands of the capitalist class or the controller managerial class and putting it in the hands of workers. If I were the Koch brothers, especially, I would really, really like that. And so this is a cause for celebration. Um, it just depends who you are. This is not the left, which is good for working people. It's the left, which is good for the owning class and the controlling class. And, and what is so great about it is that it goes out. You don't even have to pay informants. You don't have to pay saboteurs to infiltrate and destroy it. Something about the generation of millennial left leaning people, they just, we're just, we just are spiritually like there's something, you know, something wrong in the DNA. Like we're, this is just, just something wrong and we can't do um, it just turns into this PMC white collar socialism, jobs guarantee for managers, failed managers. And um, what it does is it alienates workers. When you say that socialism is about gender or something like this, and I see this, I see people all the time in these Twitter debates. They're like, the DSA is a fundamentally liberal, or, liberal organization, and that's a good thing. You know, we need, uh, we need uh, liberation for um, this, that, and the other group with respect to gender. Um Okay, whatever. I'm not even taking a stance on that. What I'm saying is when you have people saying that Marxism is about that, socialism is about that, the Koch brothers are the, well, the one that's still living. Um, you know, he's thinking, great, right? Because now it's not about class. Socialism isn't about class anymore. Now it's not about capital. It's about something which only a handful of people can understand because only 30% of people in this country have gone to university, right? So, yeah. so what they're doing is, you know, they're doing the Lord's work, you know, the master's work. Uh, with, with regard to, you know, Nick's question, um, which was people were inspired by the Bernie campaign, transferred that feeling of inspiration to the DSA because Bernie didn't do the work of creating his own organization and DSA kind of like stepped in to fill the void, right? And are now sort of like having difficulty um, giving up on giving up on the ghost of the Bernie campaign, right? Like I would say that <clears throat> it's important to realize that the DSA was never a, a true successor to Bernie 2016 because it didn't actually 
resemble Bernie's 2016 support base. Right. Bernie's 2016 yeah. support base was, I mean, it had plenty of, of middle-class millennials, but it also had a very strong, um, you know, working class component. Bernie's supporters, Bernie's donations came in large measure from genuinely working class people. And his primary um, performance against Hillary in 2016, he did very well in lots of rural <coughs> working class parts of the country. You know, he won Michigan and he won Michigan by cleaning up in small towns and rural areas. Um, in 2020, even, you know, his, his victory in Nevada was because he won working class unionized hospitality workers in Las Vegas by a massive margin, right? None of these demographics were ever represented in DSA. DSA was the successor of the Bernie campaign insofar as it was the organizational vehicle for his middle-class millennial, declasse middle-class millennial support base. But it was never in any way representative of the broader coalition that Bernie brought together. And that coalition had potential, um, mm. but mm. DSA didn't. And any potential it could have had, you know, it wasn't set in stone from the beginning. Um, political um, choices were made and political battles were won and lost that set the orientation of, of the organization going forward. And this is where we are now, right? And yeah, it would have been great if things had gone differently, but they didn't. And there's there's no way to turn back the clock on that. And I would say that, you know, as to why, as to the structural reason yes. for why this happened, yes. um, you know, people make all sorts of arguments about DSA. Oh, it's always been this kind of Harringtonite, you know, uh, organization. It's always been intrinsically part of the Democratic Party. And it's like DSA's membership prior to the Bernie bounce um, doesn't exist. Those people stopped being relevant immediately. Um, what happened to DSA is not the fault of anything in DSA's DNA. It's the fault of the, um, the political constituency that entered it and mobilized it. And Unless you can keep that political constituency out of future organizations, the same thing is going to happen to them, almost irrespective of their of their initial political orientation. Right. And this is something that people have to be very, very aware of. Right. Because lots of minor, you know, Trotskyist or 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 Stalinist um, sectlets like to say, oh, well, the problem was that you didn't have the right program, you know, starting out and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, man, it doesn't mm -hmm. matter what your program was. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the program was. Right. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you read the transitional program or not, because the the, you know, thousands of middle class millennial idiots who are going to join your organization and start whining about identitarian issues haven't read the transitional program either. But once they start showing up to your meetings, <laughs> you're done. <laughs> you know, like your program doesn't matter anymore. They don't they can't read your program. They can't understand your program. They're just going to vote for what they want to vote for. You know, and that's that's what happened to DSA. And. That's really the question that that we have to sort of be asking ourselves, like, how do we how do we orient ourselves in such a way that this isn't just going to happen again with whatever organization comes after DSA? I really like those framings. Uh, I, let's go to Sarah, then Julie, then Hef. So I do want to kind of like ask, like, maybe there is a part of this that is in DSA's DNA, which is the fact that we are like in DSA constantly running candidates to be Democrats. And this is to realign the Democratic Party. But this might be an impossible task because the Democrats are a bourgeois party and they get billions and billions of dollars of corporate money from corporate oligarchs and 
all sorts of people whose like role in capitalism is to dominate workers. So, you know, from Michael Harrington's like beginnings, he was always like a reformist and he was always, you know, even when you look at Jamal Bowman, like standing for Israel, like Michael Harrington himself, like knew like the Israeli national anthem by heart, <laughs> like he was a Zionist as well. And this is because these people are like in bed with the Democrats. And so probably like, you know, instead of thinking about it as an ideological like cause, it's a material cause. It's that like these people get money from the Democratic Party, their staffers mm-hmm. or their, you know, um, their politicians get elected to be Democrats. And so all along, they're always going to be chasing that sweet dollar that'll get them reelected again. So they're going to vote to break strikes. They're going to vote to uh, oppress workers and, you know, do whatever it takes to like, you know, uh, have their lifestyles like every year re-upped. Yeah. Julie. Um, the question of what about the people that are still holding out hope for DSA? What do we say to them? I could share my experience of my local chapter when um, we put it, the OC together uh, after the Bernie campaign. The steering committee was me, a warehouse worker, a girl that worked at Dollar General, a carpenter, and a guy who was unemployed and homeless. Now the steering committee is a PhD candidate, an accountant, and a professional nonprofit, whatever they do. I don't even know. I don't even know what he does. They don't even, they don't even know what they do. <laughs> and I kept saying to everyone, it's no, really, you guys, it's different. Our chapter is different. We're, we're actually working class. This is going to work. And here we are now. Mm. It will happen to you too. If it hasn't happened to your chapter already. Half the time or. Okay. Sure. To anybody who thinks that, you know, it's worth uh, staying in the DSA to try to reform it and to change it and orient it towards, you know, good class politics. Uh, I think it's worth laying out the democratic structures of the DSA for you, uh, for you to keep in mind as you embark on this, you know, crazy mission. What does democracy look like in the DSA? Well, you have a a bunch of local chapters scattered across the United States and each chapter, uh, holds elections for its own leadership and they can choose, you know, their own, you know, uh, methods of, 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 for their elections. They can choose whatever voting system they want and, and all, you know, the worst ones choose the least democratic voting systems. And these chapters also, uh, every two years elect a team of delegates to send to the National DSA Convention, which is held once every two years. And it's at the quest it's at the convention where the biggest decisions are supposed to be made. Right. Right. In other words, the convention 
is supposed to be the time where, in, in quotes, the membership of DSA makes decisions. Okay. The highest body of the, uh, of the organization, right? It's exactly, exactly. And the uh, delegates of a convention, um, you know, they debate all these different proposals for the next two years of the DSA. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a lot of debate, very lively debate. And at some point during the convention, the delegates also elect the NPC, the National Political Committee. And it's the job of the NPC to execute on all the proposals that were passed at convention. And you could say kind of above the NPC are the paid staffers, which includes the director, Maria Svart, and a bunch of others. And the paid staffers of DSA are supposed to work at the behest of the National Political Committee, which is supposed to carry out the decisions of the delegates, which are supposed to, um, you know, uh, carry out the the will and the interests of the uh, local chapters that elected them, right? So in this like very long and indirect way, um, there's democracy in the DSA, right? Here's the problem. <clears throat> even, even to elect delegates at the local level, um, you know, the, the, the elections are a total mess. Um, a lot of chapter use board account and a lot of them don't rely on a very high quorum. Can you uh, have, I just want to uh, ask you to maybe explain Borda. I know this is like a complicated thing and, and, and maybe there's a way we can do this without getting into like academic academies here. But um, a lot of, a lot of people aren't going to know what Borda is. Yeah. I mean, I, I can kind of, so the, the main issue um, from the, from the perspective of DSA internal democracy is that there are no actual standards for internal democracy. Um, every chapter basically does whatever it wants, both in terms of which electoral system is used and also in terms of membership standards, right? So um, chapters uh, frequently um, uh, just expel uh, inconvenient people, right, on a variety of pretexts. So that's one way that that political debate is short-circuited. And chapters frequently use electoral systems that specifically uh, empower tightly organized minorities to win super majorities of delegate seats or, or leadership seats or whatever. Right. Board account is one of these electoral yes. systems. Right. So um, some some chapters use use like um, plurality voting. You know, there, there are a variety of different ways that you can you can rig elections, essentially, if you have unlimited leeway to implement whatever electoral system you like. Um, so th- that that tends to be what what happens. And and every every two years, the NPC, the outgoing NPC tries to use board account to elect the next NPC. And every two years so far, the delegates at the convention have specifically overruled that <laughs> and implemented a more democratic electoral system. It just goes to show you that like the the, the organization, it's a total shit show um, in terms of how elections are run. And 
um, if, if you're going in and you're trying to like oust these kind of tightly organized Democratic Party aligned careerists from leadership, um, they're just going to change the rules or they're just going to find some pretext to expel you. Like that's there are no safeguards. There are no guardrails. Like there's nothing that the organization is going to do to protect your democratic rights if you're actually going up against people who whose jobs are on the line, you know, <laughs> like not, these not people are not going to. Yeah, not to nitpick, but you've just told me that the member that the, the, the delegations, uh, the assemblies uh, at every instance have pushed back on board account and, 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 and enforced on the NPC another way of doing the elections. And yet you're telling me nothing can be done. So I, I, I'm, I'm just a little confused. Like if, if, if the membership is able to do this, then how come? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so I would say that, you know, the membership of DSA frequently, the, the not particularly sort of caucusized membership frequently has reasonably good political instincts. Right. Mm. Um, but they are not able to actually, um, just structurally, they're not able to work their will, right? They can do, they can win a, a victory like getting STV for the NPC. But as soon as the, um, the convention is over, it's, mm. it's the NPC that is actually calling all the shots. And once right. you have this group of 16 people who are the 16, like most politically careerist people in the organization, basically, um, making all the decisions, like even if they get elected with a certain political orientation, as soon as they're on the body, like they're, they're, they're going to start towing the towing, whatever Jamal Bowman wants them to do, because that's, that's okay. just kind of how, how the, how the cookie crumbles. Right. So it's like in, in order to, to actually reform DSA, you would have to have the ability you would have to basically have enough people that you could be an independent political organization. You would have to have enough people to actually, you know, win thumping majorities in chapters all across the country. And if you had that many people, you know, you wouldn't need DSA. You'd be your own thing. You know, like there, there would be no point like um, to, to enforce your, the will of uh, to enforce your will on DSA. You need so many people. Um, you know, winning these elections scattered all around the country. Um, the elections are happening, uh, you know, uh, on a totally unpredictable cadence, like local chapters. Sometimes they have every year they have leadership elections. Sometimes they have every two years, the national, uh, general, um, the, the convention happens every two years, you know, like the, it would require so much political organization, um, to be able to take over DSA. If you had that kind of manpower, you would be much better off just not wasting your time with DSA and just doing your own thing, you know? Truly. I wanted to point out that Jamal, what Jamal is saying isn't just theoretical. We've seen it happen. We had a class unity member be elected as a delegate from Portland DSA Mm -hmm. and the steering committee in Portland decided that um, they didn't like him. So they refused to seat him as a delegate. Right. Um, and they were never punished for it. That that was never reversed. Right. And and it can't be. I mean, this is the thing. Hef, you were, you were right. It's not democratic. It's, it's like, it's about as democratic as the Democratic Party. I mean, do you remember when um, there were, you know, objections, you know, people were saying things uh, about uh, the Democratic primary in 2016. Finally, Debbie Wasserman Schultz comes out and says, look, this is our thing. We don't yeah. owe you a democratic 
election in the Democratic Party. This is an internal thing and it's ours. So, you know, in the Democratic Party, there are no real members. You, you're not a dues payer. You don't have any control over them. It's just a self-appointed, self-selecting group of people who decide. And they're backed by very powerful, very wealthy people. And the owner class is not going to let you have an insurrection with their money. So, I mean, we just need to understand it's not democratic. And look, when I say that the, the structure of it, it's constitutionally paralyzed, crippled, uh, whatever you want to call it, it has to do with a horizontal decentralized structure. It's not a centralized organization. It has no command structure. It doesn't do anything. It has the structure of a DIY scene, which is why it's so appealing yeah. to hipsters. Basically, it's like <laughs> ISIS or something. You're a member if you say you're a member. There is, you know, you start up your own little cell and then you just run somebody for office and then all the other DSA people say, you know, inshallah or whatever. And, uh, and um, oh, we got one. Well, no, you didn't get one. There was a little guerrilla band of clowns in some district who did something and now their person who they helped is off to the races with their career suckers there is no command structure there is no accountability and so it can't be democratic i mean that said though i mean it is an institution and you can't change institutions you can break them up and you can start new ones and so that's that's a way to think about it and i think um with respect to your initial question um what do you say to people who are feeling like they're in a bad relationship how do you deal with it i mean um you know if you're not ready to be done there probably isn't anything that can be said but if you are feeling exasperated i would encourage you to pull the trigger because it is a waste of your time you could you know learn how to you know play an instrument you could do anything with your life it's just a waste of time because Look, the function of the DSA, like if your cat is running amok in your house and making messes, give the kitty some string to keep it busy, right? That's what this is. The whole board account thing, you said, please explain that. What does that mean? That's a perfect example. All these people who call themselves socialists are bickering with each other about board account. You're just giving the kitty some string to keep them busy, right? And so, you know, it makes me think now, the way you put it, Jamal, I'm thinking, well, God, maybe we shouldn't dissolve the DSA because... Because if all the if all the nasty poison sort of focuses and centralizes here, if we break it up, then it's going to just poison whatever else. Yeah, I mean the 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 issue I think with that is that DSA has and now less than it did, but it has always had a a pretty large population of just basically people who are fine and who just like want to fight for healthcare, right? Like that's the that's the kind of like volunteer base of DSA. It's people with pretty decent you know, reasonably decent politics, reasonably decent Bernie supporting, you know, politics, they could be useful for an actual socialist organization. And they're kind of sucked into DSA where their energies are kind of misdirected towards getting, um, getting AOC elected or whatever DSA is up to these days. Right. Like, um, so it, it is DSA is important because it is squatting on political territory and hoovering up people who might be useful um in a in a different organization with with a different sort of internal structure and a different um uh, a different leadership um but how do you how do you actually go about building something like that i don't think you can do it through the dsa like i think whatever whatever optimism people had about DSA back when it had lots of members and when chapters were actually, you know, getting things done and meetings were happening and there was internal debate and all this other stuff like, you know, it, it became captured around the country by 
the most hardened core of middle class activists. And um, you, you're not going to be able to dislodge them at this point. You're, you're not going to be able to to do anything with this husk of an organization. So the question next becomes, well, OK, what what do we do then? What next? What kind of organization would be preferable? I don't think anyone really knows that. But if if the railroad strike actually happens, that's an opportunity to see, OK, where is grassroots support for the railroad strike going to come from? If we can get these people talking to each other and sort of organizing together under a, a broader you know, institutional um, umbrella, that might be a good place to start at getting a membership that is better than the DSA's membership wound up being um, and maybe accomplishing something more than what DSA has accomplished, which is basically, for, from the standpoint of working class politics, is basically nothing in the final account. Uh, half. Okay. It, it looks as though, okay, um, you know, through this, you know, long and indirect way, you know, the rank and file membership are, are making decisions, but, uh, actually, um, it, it's, it's totally hierarchical and the, um, unelected paid staffers of the DSA are the ones with the most power calling the shots. Uh, and we know this through experience. Um, when Maria Smart-Fart doesn't want something to be funded, doesn't want it to be done, just doesn't she, get she done. can make that happen, mm. Mm. right? Yeah. And it would take a majority vote of the NPC um, to remove her. And the NPC is not your friend either because we know that the NPC... Um, in the recent past and probably for a long time has basically decided which which proposals from convention get passed uh, get executed and which ones don't which proposals get funded and which ones don't so you can't even you know you can't even trust the npc to do what it's supposed to do and uh, you know Obviously, we just talked talked about you know um, the problem with um, the delegates. Uh, they have much better politics the, than the NPC, but even they're a, a self selected crowd. So, if you really want to change the DSA, you have to elect a, uh, a majority uh, on the NPC who are willing uh, to fire the staffers. Um, but when you get to that point, then you know they're actually willing to do that. Um, and in the, in order to do that, you have to have, a, you have to command a majority of the convention delegates. And if you want to do that, you have to win enough delegate seats at a, a big number of, of DSA chapters, uh, the biggest of which are totally captured by, um, the career interests that we've been talking about this whole time. And what has mm, happened so, meanwhile? When people are yeah. doing this, like years are passing, right? You know, yeah. uh, there's a war in Ukraine. There's a strike broken. There's, um, you know, another tax break for billionaires passed by a, a, a two-faced politician. There's more people dying because they don't have health care. All this is going on. And meanwhile, the leftists are trying to save the soul of the left. I mean, it's just 
it's just string for the kitty, you know? And, and to give an example, I mean, we keep using these words. I suppose people know what they mean if they're listening to this, but you know, the quorum issue, a bunch of people joined Chicago DSA because of Bernie stuff. And then, you know, they have all these paper members, but you go to one meeting and you realize that this is not about actually doing politics. These people actually don't want to do politics. What they want to do is just simulate meetings basically, and just do the procedure and the formality. Um, and so they have so many, so many members, uh, on paper and there's a rule quorum. You have to have so much of a percentage of your membership present in order to do anything. And they can't, it's a fundamentally illegitimate organization. But the thing is that shows you the leadership, the self-selecting leadership just does whatever it wants. It doesn't meet the quorum. So none of this is legitimate, but they just fucking do it anyways. And so it's just, I mean, look, just, you know, she already doesn't love you. Just walk away. You know what I mean? It's, it, it hurts, but nothing hurts more. <laughs> nothing, I mean, yeah, it's sad, but you know, it's not less sad if you, you know, you know, just, just walk away. Just walk away. You can do it. You can do it. Okay. Somebody volunteer now to tell me how class unity comes into this picture because we got to, we got to put a bow on this thing. Why are we here? <laughs> what are we, what are we oriented towards now here at this stage? Uh, what are our plans for the future moving forward? Can, can anyone tell me uh, what the conversations have been like within our, uh, uh, shall we say tentatively entitled DSA caucus class unity? Oh, well, I can kick that conversation off. Yeah. I, I was hoping you would. Uh, by relating it back to our earlier uh, conversation, I think the biggest uh, reason that so many leftist socialist members of the DSA don't want to leave it is because they know that if they do, they'd be starting from square one. Yeah. If you want to leave the DSA and you still want to... Uh, you know, contest for socialist politics, you need to build the alternative. And that there's a long road ahead if that's what you want to do. But I think that's the only viable path forward at this point. Mm. So I think that the most important task that Class Unity can take on at this moment is to begin to build an alternative to the DSA. Yeah, and, and it's like, it, it's important to to head off at the past the, the allegation that this is, oh, it's just you're building a little sect, right? It's like, yeah, I don't think anyone thinks class unity is going to be the next workers party, right? Like, right. We're, we're not saying that class unity will be it, we're, we're not like what well, the socialist equality party thinks of itself as right this the socialist equality party which is the trotsky's party behind the world socialist website honestly thinks that it and it's like 200 <laughs> members are going to be the next yeah. workers party right like <clears throat> i don't think anyone in cu is that stupid um it, it, it's not about like the the organizational it's not about like building this organization. It's about getting people with good politics together and letting them go out and try to find opportunities to further, you know, working class political organization. And if those opportunities result in the formation of like local, you know, workers parties, right. That, that sort of contest elections at the local level, 
that's great. You know, there are all sorts of things that people could be doing if they would just stop wasting their time in the DSA and go out and talk to workers who are pissed off, right? Like railroad workers are pissed off. Everyone is pissed off about the economy. There's a recession on the horizon. People are going to be angry. Their working conditions are going to be suffering. You can talk to them. You can get them talking to each other. You can, you know, get them out to a barbecue. You can pick an issue that resonates at the local level and you can fight for that. And that's how you actually build something. Trying to corral them into the DSA is just going to demobilize them because the DSA is hellish to be involved in and trying to enter DSA yourself and kind of steer it towards doing something productive is just going to demobilize you. Like there are so many people who still, you know, have good politics are reasonably, you know, Marxist or socialist or whatever, but they're, they're, they're like bashing their heads against the wall in the DSA. And it's such a shame. Like the reasonable people could have disagreed on how much potential the DSA had, like maybe two years ago. That's not really the case anymore. Um, this this thing, like I said earlier, this the the, the goose is cooked, right? It's it's yeah. you got to get out right now. Yeah, and also yeah. you know maybe yeah. there's something wrong with the framing. I mean, because I, I get your point of your question, like, okay, if the DSA is so bad, what are we going to do that's different? Um, but but um, maybe it's not. What are we going to do? But but what about stop doing? Um, one thing we could, I think sometimes stopping doing things could be better than, you know, so we need to stop, um, being bullied and, and, uh, blackmailed, extorted, whatever mm. into voting for these, uh, these Democrats like, okay, they're imperfect. Joe Biden's imperfect, but I mean, look at the alternative. I mean, <laughs> yeah, precisely. So no more of that. That's something we can do. Um, we can stop electing, stop electing these lame, uh, careerist politicians like, you know, who say that they're progressive or whatever. That is all hocus pocus mumbo jumbo, right? Just stop. Um, you know what? Don't vote. Um, if it, that's what it comes down to, cause you're just throwing your, just throwing in the trash anyways. What you're doing is handing some manager $130,000 a year salary. Um, and so there are plenty of things you cannot do, but I mean, ultimately we do need to understand that, I mean, so for, for instance, um, if you work, if you're, you're in a workplace and it's not unionized, unionize it. I mean, this isn't, isn't rocket science. I mean, and, and be careful about which union, uh, you, you work with, maybe don't affiliate with, um, a terrible bureaucratic PMC nightmare union. Um, and, you know, not have any illusions about, you know, you know, a lot of white collar um, left people like to imagine that they are the working class. I mean, we could also get rid of the illusions because a huge part of the problem with the DSA is the fact that it sustains the illusion that there is opposition in this country. Uh, and if you support the DSA, you support the illusion that there's opposition in this country. That's what we, first of all, need to just stop and let the facade fall down. Like those, you know, the old Western movies, you know, you have the, you have the fake wall of all the buildings, just let it fall over. And then we have a reckoning and see where we actually are and take stock. And, you know, it's going to hurt, but whatever. It's not like, it's not like you weren't fucked before you realized you were fucked. And so, um, you know, then in the somewhat longer term, I mean, we need to get real about this. There needs to be a, a political organization, thinking longer term, a party, uh, which is by and for the working class, which is exclusively focused on political, economic, 
uh, policy by and for the working class and will not be will not be um, co-opted by this homegrown psycho brew of uh, of uh, left liberal issues that has um, blighted the left since the 60s. I mean, there there has to be a, you know, vaguely populist labor organized labor oriented party um, that will, you know, and someone will say, you know, oh, but you can't do that. You can't have a third party. Bernie Sanders can't break from the Democrats. Maybe Donald Trump will win. Well, you know what? Donald Trump won. So forget it. Stop doing that. There has to be another party. And yeah, it's going to be hard. And you know what? A Republican might win. But so fucking what? That That's what, you know, needs to sink in. There has to be a labor party. And yeah, it's going to be hard. But it's, I mean, it's, is it easy now? I mean... That's what we have to be realistic about. I mean, in the short term, stop doing bad things. In the medium term, maybe organize your workplace. In the long term, like this isn't worth it unless we have a, 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 a an organization by and for working class people, which advocates solely political economic issues by and for the working class. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Well said. Well said. Well said. Thank you for that. Julie. Julie. Explicitly, what class unity is not going to do is we are not going to organize to get delegates elected in our chapters to go to convention. That is a waste of time. We we put so much effort into that last convention and it, look what happened. Child care for all uh, passed and and just withered, the NPC, withered, was left to wither on yeah, the vote. Yeah, he decided yeah. not to do anything with it at all. Yeah, yeah. So we're not going to do that again. Am I going to quit the DSA? I'm probably still going to be a paper member of the DSA because we have a book club that meets uh, every other week that I enjoy going to. So I'm going to go fine. to the book club. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. But I'm not, I, I'm not taking DSA seriously as anything more than entertainment at this point. Have. I think class unity needs to uh, come clean with our own participation in the uh, socialist charade that is the DSA. Yeah. Uh, how many, how many uh, recruits have we gotten that uh, told us later on, I wouldn't have joined the DSA if I hadn't found uh, this uh, militant faction within it called class unity. Uh, we've funneled yeah. <laughs> uh, socialists with good politics into the DSA and wasted their time and their efforts. So uh, uh, we're responsible for that. I think what we need to do now is um, we're going to stop... Um, vying for power nationally in the DSA. Locally, uh, it, it's kind of up for grabs. We're not gonna we're not gonna disallow anybody from from doing things in the DSA. We're not gonna tell our members what to do. And um, you know, some of us do feel like their own local chapter is functional enough where they can plug in to some decent, um, you know, working class project that doesn't feed into the Democratic Party. Um, and for those of us that are fortunate enough to do that, great, go ahead. But when we 
Uh, but when we get new members that ask us, oh, I'm not a member of the DSA, but I'm willing to join, we're not going to recommend that they join the DSA. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're probably going to treat the DSA, or we're probably going to tell them, okay, you know, go ahead and check out, like, you know, all the other political organizations in your area. Maybe DSA is one of them. And, you know, maybe if you go to your DSA chapter, you might find people, you know, um, you know, with decent politics. Mm. Uh, but uh, I think we have to be willing to tell people, um, you know, after, you know, after going around and, and you know, um, not finding any good political opportunities in the leftist organizations in your area, maybe you should do something on your own. Uh, maybe, maybe find, maybe look for political opportunities elsewhere and we can help you with that. Well, that that's important. I think just being honest with oneself about that. Cause I think a lot of the despair of left people or people who say I'm a socialist or whatever, cause of course these words can mean a bunch of different things. But I mean, if you think you're one of them, uh, you probably have had this experience despair about where can I go and what can I do? What's the best organization? I've got to do something. What, what should I do? Which one? I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to be with a crazy sect where they just sit around and read Bob Avakian. On the other hand, I don't want to be in this group that's such a sort of, you know, you know, just, you know, doesn't have even, doesn't even claim to be wanting to do anything to change the world. So, so I, I got to find the good one. Which one's the good one? Well, here's the thing. Let it sink in. There isn't a good one. Mm. There is, there is nothing, right? That's what needs to happen first. People who are looking for an organization to join need to all realize that it doesn't exist. Right. And so what they need to do is to find each other and to create the organization that they're looking for. You know, that's, that's what really needs to happen. And now somebody's going to say, oh, but do you know how unrealistic that is? It's like, no, I, I, I know. I know maybe it won't work. It probably won't. But I mean, we won't get any farther ahead by entertaining illusions and wishful thinking. I mean, wishful thinking is just, it's the death. It's the death of, of politics. Yeah. Um, so That's the first well step said. is just letting it sink in. Yeah. 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 All right. I think this podcast, I think our website uh, can be a log and an archive of that process of letting it sink in, so to speak, Dan, and uh, and also maybe uh, an incubator for the kind of conversations that we need to be having as we try to think our way through uh, what that politics actually looks like, what that return of politics, so to speak, actually looks like. So I, I know we've been going for about uh, an hour, hour and 40 here, folks. Uh, it's probably time to, to wrap it up um, unless there are pressing further remarks uh, from my guests. I don't want to make it seem like, you know, we're taking the, we're going to shoulder the whole burden of, of reviving the left or anything. Uh, I think we can engage in activities that are worthwhile, even if, you know, we don't play a pivotal role in building the next workers party. And I think, you know, anybody that wants to join us, um, you know, uh, could benefit from, you know, our, our political education program, uh, from uh, the network that we have to offer of, of Marxist socialists that um, 
agree on enough to have a good conversations and to, you know, you know, even just a soundboard to help each other, um, you know, be productive and, you know, uh, you know, find and try to capitalize on political opportunities in their own communities. I think, I mean, I think that's something we can do even now with our size. Uh, and I think we can do, you know, meaningful, productive work, even, even just doing that. Perfect. Yeah, typically when people join class unity, like I'm not telling them, okay, like go join DSA. I'm usually like pretty skeptical of whatever chapters in existence. Like, so you get someone who joins from Philly and I'm aware that like Philly is the chapter that had like all these splits that are like, you know, exiled the class reductionists and we don't have any Philly members that are really left. Um, so I'm like, I'm like, okay, here's another guy in Philly. Who's like a paper member of CU. He's never been active, but he responded to my text. You guys should go to a meeting together, go to like an IWW meeting, go to a, the tenant union meeting, go to the transit union meeting, try something like, just see what it is and let them discover on their own. Like, okay, whether this is like the lion's den of like liberal reformism or whether there's like a potential like campaign they can hop onto for like, um, you know, public goods like transportation or housing or something like that. And people can find each other that way, or they can like at least discover for themselves, like some sort of like, you know, opportunity. And, um, yeah, I don't, I wouldn't tell anyone ever again to build another DSA chapter. They'll just get, they're, they're building the infrastructure for like these really wealthy people to just take over and like, uh, dominate the working class in their area. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I would, I would add to that. Um, you know, even if, even if it's hard to positively do anything, um, clearing the road of debris is, is not a unimportant task. Um, and so I would say, you know, there's a lot of debris on this road. Um, somebody better clear it off, you know? So just in case anybody ever wanted to go anywhere, they could. Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the situation we're in. So with that diagnostic, I mean, I mean, what you got to do depends on situation you're in. You got to recognize which situation you're in to decide what to do. And, you know, that's where we're at. So I would say join class unity. Let's, let's, um, see what we can do. Right. Brent, uh, this sounds like part one of, of a, of a two-parter. We, we definitely need to, uh, I think reconvene this maybe in January, um, and see if we can cook up another uh, great episode like this. Cause I think this is probably one of the best conversations we've had, uh, with, with this project. So, uh, I want to thank you all for joining us tonight. Uh, we've had uh, a good conversation and I think it's the beginning of uh, a longer term conversation. So, so thank you all for, for joining, uh, Jamal, Hef, Dan, Sarah, Julie, thanks everyone. And uh, I hope we'll be able to do another one of these again soon. It's all good. Thank you.